Today, I'm speaking with a visionary in the world of documentary filmmaking, Joe Litzinger. As a primetime Emmy-nominated TV producer, renowned for his work on the seven-time Emmy-winning series, Light Below Zero, and the creator behind numerous hours of nonfiction television, Joe's impact on the industry is undeniable. Beyond the accolades, Joe emerges not only as a producer, but as a storyteller, committed to presenting unfiltered and authentic narratives on our screens. In our conversation, we uncovered the untold stories of his career, tracing his journey from the early days to the challenges and triumphs of the world of documentaries. Moreover, we'll explore the nuances of Life Below Zero and how Joe's distinctive approach as a documentarian transcends the norms of unscripted television. He shares insights into the creative process, gripping behind-the-scenes stories, and advice for aspiring filmmakers. Okay. Hey, Joe, thank you so much, you know, for taking the time to talk with me today. We had a, a, a little bit of time offline, which was cool that we have some Jersey uh, Shore stuff in common, which was very cool to hear. Very, very close to home, uh, literally my old home. You have some family ties, which was, was pretty awesome to, to hear, you know, before we even got started. Yeah, indeed. Yes. My wife would be very excited to, to know that I was doing this podcast at all, but then also <laughs> to hear that the host is from literally her favorite place in the world, which is uh, Avalon and Bentner and Stone Harbor, New Jersey. Yeah, exactly. It's just such, brings back the memories, of course. And, and you know, and, and the reason, you know, we, we met through a, a mutual friend, a friend that, you know, worked with you, a person that worked with you, a friend of my wife's that kind of connected us. And I thought that was really cool when, obviously, I've heard of your productions, but it never, like, talking to someone behind such a, you know, high-profile career that you have very inspiring to people. Right. And, you know, for me, I always like to kind of start, you know, where all things began, right. You're in the document documentary world, you know, filmmaking, nonfiction television, like going back to that, like, was there like a spark or moment that sort of said, you know, for me, I came out, I thought I'd be directing movies by now and you become a PA and all that stuff. Right. And life happens. Were you always into this sort of format or did you kind of fall into it through other means? Sure. Well, first off, you know, shout out to our mutual friend, Adam, for uh, setting us up. Uh, hi, Adam, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, when great. you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, so my background is uh, I grew up in Texas, Houston, and went to school in Austin. I knew that I wanted to do something in the creative space. Uh, started out doing advertising well first started out in computer science because i really loved playing with computers and then realized that to be uh, a computer scientist you really had to be good at math no <laughs> one told me that when i first <laughs> um and programming and uh so ended up transferring to advertising and then they told me that you have to take a very difficult 7 a.m class so then i changed my major again to uh, sociology. So I ended up um, actually getting a degree in sociology, which uh, is actually somewhat relevant to the documentary space. But while I was there, I did everything I can to be in film school adjacent. So although I didn't go to film school, 
I attended as many film school classes that I could, worked with a bunch of the film students, knew that I wanted to move out to Los Angeles for to do what I wasn't quite sure. I, I moved out here and lived on my friend's couch or floor actually for about six months, just trying to find any any job. You know, people would be like, Do you wanna work? I'd be like, Yeah. <laughs> I'm like it's on i was like well, okay whatever i'll take it and very early on there was um you know this newish thing called reality television there had been you know a variety of shows like the real world and survivor and those kinds of things but it hadn't had the resurgence that that it is now but so yeah i moved out here ended up trying to figure out that i want to work in uh unscripted or they want to work in speech inscripted and the difference to me is at the time, I would work on a film set and it was very compartmentalized. Each uh, department had their own job, right? There was the lighting department, the sound department, and, and there was no sort of intermingling and everyone had their specific roles. And it's, um, it was hard to kind of break in and, and, and be able to do, find, find jobs that were, that were fulfilling. You know, there was, it was more of a journeyman path where you had to do something for 10 years and then you get to, you get to advance. Whereas the jobs that I took that were in um, reality, you know, they're like, Hey, can you hold a camera? I'd be like, uh, I, I, maybe, I, I don't know, but great. You're a cameraman. Like, can you ask questions? I'd be like, yes. And they're like, okay, great. You're a producer. And you know, so it was like, do I want to be a PA for 10 years on a film or do I want to be a producer in one day working in reality, <laughs> in reality TV? I found that uh, flexibility, I guess, um, compelling, and sort of that's how I steered in towards unscripted and reality television. Yeah, it's very similar to me, where I worked on a lot of indie shows, and same difference. It's like today you're the boom operator, tomorrow you're, you know, right? Like, hey, can you hold <laughs> this? Okay, great. You know, here's your credit. You have like ten credits at the end. You know, you're changing camera and it's pulling focus. Why not? <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> whatever it takes. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> Those are the, those sort of like, yeah, the wild west, like whatever it takes. Exactly. Like, can you hold a boom? I was like, I think, <laughs> maybe, I don't know, try. <laughs> right. Mine, exactly. unfortunately, was like Atlantic City Boardwalk holding this boom over a crowd of like 40 people. And it was heavy because they kept extending it. And I'm like, oh boy, this could be <laughs> ugly. But, you know, fortunately, you know, I was able to hold up. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it does, it does, it, it puts people, I like that aspect because, you kind of, you know, learning on the job is obviously something that you've heard from the beginning of time. But when you do take these very slow approaches, go to film school and do this and do that, it 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 puts you back so much further than just kind of jumping in, I feel. Not that film school is bad for, for those who do it, and of course, but getting on there, just getting your hands dirty, I think is more what I'm I'm getting at in terms of the actual learning for at least in my my spot you know my my part of the the filmmaking uh world that i that i was in at the time getting in there getting your hands dirty is the best way to get me okay now i get what you're saying i i don't want to do this you know or i do want to do that you know that's absolutely the case for for me it was just really like you know like you said i, I think there's a value to film school and and particularly as a place to like learn and grow but really you know the number one thing is just to do it like even if you're doing it terribly, or even if you go somewhere and you're like, what, you know, you, you, whatever, you drop the boom on the 40 people that you were trying to <laughs> hold it over their heads, but at least yes. you learned. Right. And, and the more you just get out there, the more you learn. That's really, 
the approach that I, I, I took is really took every single possible job that I could, could take in every single aspect of, of um, you know, making television. Yeah, and, and that was me too. Coming out here, it's like, oh, do you want to do something? Well, it's deferred payment, and I just I didn't know. I was like, okay, You're like sure, it's deferred. You know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. it sounds like great. You're like, yeah. I'll take the gig. Why not? And you're like, oh, I never get paid. Oh, you know, and. You know, you're just out here and you're like, why not? Sounds like good. sounds like experience. And I'm on a set and that's all I need to do so I can start meeting people and, and figuring it out. But like, like for you, so you're, you're, you're doing these kind of jobs here and there. Like, is there something, someone or, or some project that, you know, that sort of for you was like, okay, now I know I want to be in this world and this is my calling or you're finding out that it's your calling. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, one of the things for those deferred projects are the projects where you're just, you know, if you can afford to, again, take any job, paid or not, that you are meeting people. You know, people always say like, oh, it's about who you know, but not necessarily like from a, you know, I didn't know anyone from a family standpoint, but it's really more about like who you meet. And you never know, you know, we're talking about our mutual friend, Adam, who, who set this up. He was an intern of mine, I don't know, 12 years ago. And um, once I ended up uh, getting life below zero, you know, he emailed me, took a couple times for, for him to email me and be like, Hey, rem remember me? And uh, ended up working on on the show for eight years, both uh, in post and in the field. And for me, I, again, I just took every possible job. But eventually, I met somebody named Elizabeth, who ended up being my mentor for five years. And, you know, at the time, it just started as a whatever another production assistant job and another group of people but um met her and, you know we hit it off and i was a pa and she was the i don't know coordinator and then she became a production manager and then she hired me as a coordinator and then she became a line producer and then hired me as a production manager and it was really through her that uh i got to start to m move up a little bit and and through that and such a wide range of of projects I did fall in love with, uh, you know, reality television and unscripted television, going from show to show, meeting real people, doing real things, you know, but like, you know, two months you could be, I was in a, you know, oil field in Texas and then Dominican Republic for a couple months and then in Alaska, you know, it, it really just being able to go into someone's life, learn about them in such a, you know, intense quick way to be able to make something and share their stories that, that that's really what I, you know i fell in love with was um that kind of storytelling so like speaking of storytelling right like is there a process for each project when it comes to that subject right like or, or maybe a specific criteria you look for maybe when you're looking for your next project how does that all sort of come together in how you you know formulate okay this is the process right for this project like a criteria you might put together when you you, you start to choose your next project yeah i think you know initially particularly after all i uh, say i should say growing up or or uh, over the years one of the most important criteria becomes like okay what well, can i pay rent <laughs> like that does that Number does one. become yeah, an important yeah. yes once you get past that once you get an ability to start to be even more selective in your work for me um, and it sounds kind of obvious, but it's not like, it's just really finding something that's interesting. Almost everything to me is interesting on the surface, but it's a matter of, you know, is this going to be, this is going to be 
potentially in the case of what, you know, light below zero, I'm going on 11 years on this show. So when a new project comes along, I look at it at the long term. Is it something that I want in my life every day? You know, I'm not the kind of person, and I don't think this business is the kind of business where you just kind of can clock in and, and clock out. And so really, I think to me, the most important criteria and thinking about what projects I want to do or people that I want to work with is, is you know, what, what will my life be like? It's like you're getting married almost to, to something. And it's like uh, finding a partner. It's like, this will be a big part of my life. And do I want that to be a big part of my life? Right, right. So, and I, I would imagine like, you know, obviously locations, you're talking about Texas and Dominican, all these, all these areas throughout the world you're, you're sort of going to. And I would also imagine that a typical day in the life when you're on a production differs. But is there some sort of normalcy, like once you're in the thick of it, you know, whether you're on set and, and maybe you're back in post, but what is like a, a typical day, if there is such a t thing, uh, you know, that term typical day um, in your life sort of look like? You know, it, it, it definitely ranges. There's a kind of a, I don't know, Hollywood cliche, but it's like I have various projects and various stages of development. And those projects really dictate my my day to day at the, you know, at the moment, I, the majority of my focus is of course, life below zero, um, and the spinoff shows. And then on the side, it's making documentaries. So it really, which is kind of one of the beauties of working in this business is that my day to day, although there will be obviously similarities, there'll be phone calls, there'll be zoom, there'll be meetings that the content of it will change particularly you know definitely on a year-to-year -year basis sometimes on a month-to-month -month basis you know like one of the most recent projects we just completed was about people who do competitive canoe dancing <laughs> it's called um interpretive freestyle canoeing where they'll play music and and sort of use the canoe to dance but you know, at the same time, I'm also, and again, primarily my primary job is working with um, Alaskans and specifically we have a new show about indigenous Alaskans. So I'm in these worlds and although I'm having a Zoom with, I don't know, the legal department or, or, or creative teams, that the content is so varied between the variety of projects, it, it, it keeps me uh, definitely interested. But Overall, uh, no, there really is no typical, typical day. It could be, you know, in Alaska one day, you know, following people canoeing the next or like, hey, I have an idea for a TV show. It's, you know, and then I'm going to go there. I think like two weeks ago, I was in Northwest Oregon, um, you know, filming somebody who is a cowboy who lives amongst wolves. and then two days later in Alaska. So yeah, I think that's kind of the exciting part. Um, no, no, no average day. Yeah, exactly. No, that's awesome. Like, <laughs> and, and, and your company, right, is called Interesting Human Media, right? So when, you know, looking at these projects or just, you know, people that sign up for, you know, being part of your productions, right? Like, what do you think for you, like a person's story or a person or their story, what makes that like, interesting to you and how do you sort of like uncover the the extraordinary in everyday life the number one thing I, I think i look for or that i think a lot of people look for to find something or someone who's interesting is passion so it doesn't really matter what they're doing are they freestyle canoeing are they 
you know, I don't know, really into puzzles or trimming trees or building furniture or making their own homebrew. It's just finding someone who who's passionate about what, what they're doing and, and hopefully can can emote and share that that that, that passion. And and then that I think that's the initial spark. But then the next sort of elevated step, at least for me, in terms of figuring out like, is this a story worth sharing? Figuring out if what the emotion is like when somebody watches whatever the final product will be, will they feel something? You know, is it, uh, I don't know, like um, excitement or empathy or, um, you know, finding those emotions and an ability to relate and express the human condition are, are, are the, to me, the greatest stories. So really finding someone who's passionate and finding someone who can elicit emotion from a viewer. Right. Yeah. That can't be easy either. Cause you never know like who you're going to meet on these productions. Right. And sometimes they just click and they're a natural and maybe other times it's like, you're trying to pull, <laughs> pull stuff out of them, depending on the <laughs> scenario. Right. And I think when, when people think of, you know, re, you know, unscripted or, or, you know, docu documentaries funding comes to mind for me. Right. Because it's not always like, oh, hey, we have this A-list actor, so therefore you get this budget. Here's the marketing budget and you know, so forth and so on. It, obviously, funding could be like a crucial aspect of bringing these projects to, to life, no, no pun intended. But when you when, like in your experience raising money, are there like strategies for someone listening might be like, okay, I'd love to get into this world, but I don't know anyone yet, but I want to do my own thing. Are there maybe strategies that you found to be effective when seeking like financial support for projects when you've needed it? Yeah, funding and fundraising is probably the worst part of filmmaking. <laughs> I assume all kinds of any kind of filmmaking. You know, the the documentary world is is interesting. Typically, it's difficult uh, in the U.S. You know, across the globe, particularly in Canada, places like that, they have funding for non scripted particularly documentary world and projects, you know, in the U S particularly if it's a passion project or a impact documentary funding is, is very difficult. You know, I've done across the board in terms of, you know, selling something to a streamer at a time, which of course is always the, the, the gold standard that happens in about one in 50 million projects, <laughs> then uh, grant writing, which is a good avenue, except for, you know, it takes five years and that, that becomes really a full-time job. And, and nowadays, of course, there's, um, you know, Kickstarter and um, GoFundMe type. And, and really, I think it's all going to be budget dependent. Like what, how much do you think you need to tell this story? Sometimes I think myself included or filmmakers will find that they have what they need to tell that story. So do you need $100,000 or half a million dollars to tell your short documentary or even your feature? Or is this something that you could make with your iPhone? Is this something you can make with borrowing cameras? Is this something you can make for really $5,000, $500? I think I guess that's the biggest piece of advice that I would have for, for, for fundraiser people who are interested in fundraising for their project is truly not like in an ideal world, you win the lottery. Like, great, then I'll make my 
short film for $5 million, but truly, what do you think it will actually take uh, to, to make your movie? Go from there. So like, like, would the concept be like, if you can make it, maybe we'll call it maybe a lean budget, right? Maybe some people say, you know, cut, trim the fat or, oh, you know, terms I've heard over the years. Um, <laughs> When when you when is that something where you could take that and say now I can showcase this thing I only did it for this much so therefore, you know does that help you then propel to bigger productions or or more access to funds because they see what you can do with so little for instance I think there's some of that I also think though a lot of people you know particularly the audience you know don't necessarily take that in mind keep that in mind when they're watching right they're just Again, they're just wondering, I think they're just, they're feeling something. And it's like, I think you can make them feel something with hundreds of thousands of dollars, or again, just a, a compelling story. I think there are broadcast standards, of course, that you have to, to work through. Like if you're trying to do a, you know, a Netflix or a big streamer, that, that could be preventative. There's also, you know, can you afford to do this? Do you need the fundraising to pay yourself? You know, is this a side job? Or can you have a full-time job and do this as a hobby? Um, if you need to pay yourself, and this is something that you think is going to take two to three years, that's you know a different story. And again, if you do the fundraising grant side, that's another year of your life where you're spending an entire year trying to raise money when you could have just made it. Mm. You know, and and I think I think it's just really a matter of how fast you want to do it. But I do think, again, the most important thing is, is the, the story and the emotion. And if you can find ways to capture that either with, you know, shooting it on red or shooting it on an iPhone, that, that it doesn't really matter. If you have a good story, people will watch it. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and you know, some, some things you can't control. So my next question would be, the situations you're in, like making these films, being a filmmaker, obviously in the conditions you're working under, oftentimes I would imagine you're in some pretty intense and, and potentially dangerous situations, right? Like, is there is there something like maybe a story of a, of, of a moment you could share that maybe it was like, okay, this is really not good. This is a very bad situation we're in. Like, and how do you like get the team and, and manage yourselves to get through it, you know, physically and emotionally yeah it's a great question you know, on life below zero and I, you know for those listeners who don't know life below zero is a show that airs on national geographic and um about uh, people who live in alaska subsistence hunters fishers people who live off off the land and you know temperatures could range between negative 70 and and uh 100 degrees fahrenheit um and there's obviously very extreme conditions and we've been filming that for for 11 years and we've definitely been in some uh crazy uh conditions you know personally i just go and kind of visit all the locations as the executive producer and the showrunner i'm not out in the field for the extended period of time like the crews are um, i did that kind of stuff prior to to running life below zero but for the teens on life below zero in particular they're definitely been you know you've got bears you've got weather you've got falling into to ice, you've got, you know, whiteout conditions, negative 70, you know, we're in places where it's so cold, you can't like lighter fluid won't light, Ugh. you know, it's the kind of places, I don't know if you've seen viral videos where 
you have a steaming cup of coffee and you throw it in the air and by the time it gets to the ground it's it's snow um you know that you can feel it in your lungs but i think really the most important thing and, and one of the most important things that that we do and i um life was yours produced by bbc studios and national geographic and obviously um, those two corporations take safety very very important and then to me uh, as well you know uh, as a showrunner i think about the crews in the field uh, every day all the time that they're out there and how to keep them safe and we're fortunate that we have a very lean team in the field we have four people who go out there is a producer a shooter um, an assistant camera person and a safety person and that person's job is to keep and keep the crew safe and and we are typically filming with experts these are people who live in alaska these are people who this is their world it's not like you know we take people from the lower 48 and drop them into these conditions and see but you know on our show we've had we have the extreme you know we have people who uh have climbed everest like a couple times they're pretty hardy like right they can they'll, they'll, they'll cut it out there and then you have people who've never left los angeles but across the board i think the most important thing is, is more mental you know you talk about um one thing to talk about about a lot is the term going bushy so if you're out there you're away from your family you're isolated you know we're getting to a time right now in alaska where it's going to be an hour or no sunlight whatsoever, like literally 24 hours of darkness, you know, negative 50 degrees. You're living with three people that you just met in a small tent. You know, the bathroom is a bucket in the corner. And it's really about about mental health and and finding crew and, and people who can who can tolerate and who can who can be out there. The, the physical health obviously is, is of course, extremely important, but in terms of qualification, in terms of background, it's really finding people who can handle the isolation. There have been a variety of extremes, but, you know, you could, same way, you know, in terms of the, the mental aspects of it, like, it really all depends on, you know, you could be in a negative city situation with bears, or you could be, you know, in downtown LA, and um, what is dangerous is relevant i think what's important is how we handle it mm -hmm. yeah and i mean obviously people responded you know life below zero's uh, numerous emmy awards you know viewer favorite like making a show like that what are sort of you know obviously we talked about the challenges but you know what do you feel like the rewards of uh producing a show that maybe you know you're diving deep into the lives of of these people that are you know in these harsh environments like it sounds like you know okay everything is so intense and 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 obviously cold what what are like the rewards that you get from uh producing a show like this well you know we get money and emmy <laughs> yeah those are the most important <laughs> things are all here for <laughs> <laughs> right that's what we're all here for is how to get money in. no um of course getting getting um like i mentioned being a paycheck and being able to um pay your rent is important but for me the the biggest reward of life below zero one being able to pick the teams that i work with and then being able to foster growth amongst the crew um you know we mentioned adam as an example but uh for me the personally the biggest re reward is is finding um people you like to work with and uh helping elevate uh, their careers while you elevate the show and really being able to make something that is of uh, pretty good quality entertaining and then also doing it with 
with great people. Like, I don't know if that sounds um, cheesy, but it really, it really is the truth. Like that is the most important reward is, is being able to work collaboratively with people you like, you like working with. And I think the more success you get, you know, uh, I guess probably even the more like financial security you have, the more you're able to do that. And I think ultimately it's probably what everyone in the creative field wants to strive for. And it's definitely what, what I strive for is just the continued ability to make great projects with great people. Yeah, absolutely. I think that once you can get a crew that, right, you just know these are your people and they're as invested in it as you are, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a happy marriage between everyone where you all have the same goal, making great content and obviously enjoying what you do. And I, I, I wondered, like, like with, with that show specifically, like, does the approach in, in making this show, do you, does it differ from what people may typically associate with reality television? Like, is there a way you sort of navigate or present these unscripted elements in a way that sets it apart with, you know, shows that people just might be accustomed to just watching on, um, you know, network TV? Yeah, you know, sometimes reality is a bad word. Like, reality TV. People are like, ugh, <laughs> reality TV. Yeah. I think there's a wide range of reality. And I think even the reality TV where people are like, ugh, reality TV, like the let's just say not exactly real reality TV. There's a place for that. Um, it's entertaining for people, but I've been very fortunate to work on shows that, that are actually un, unscripted. Life Blows Your Air is on National Geographic and is produced by BBC Studios. You know, you talk about National Geographic and talk about the BBC, those places hold truth and accountability, you know, as, as gold standards in terms of that. I've been very fortunate that we're in a position to document reality. And, you know, every time you do anything, you know, they talk about the bystander effect or the just being um, watched is going to maybe change how you, how you react. So what is, this is, this is a topic we could probably talk about for hours, which is like, well, what is truth? Like, you know, if you add music to something, is it, is it, is it, if you, uh, you, you know, if obviously if you say, say this, or here are your lines, but again, the beauty of life below zero in particular is that the people we film are living authentic lives. There is, they are literally in extreme environments. You can't, uh, uh cue weather or animals. It, it just happens. And it's really following the, their stories that that hopefully, you know, you're lucky and as, as we've been that you're following, you don't need to add drama. You don't need to make up anything because the story in itself is naturally engaging and, and um, you know, interesting. Yeah, because there are, obviously, we've all seen the scripted reality shows right where you know right it's, it's, it's very sitcom in, in a way but you, obviously what you're doing you, like you said and and even just reading stuff online if you just google you know life below zero you're seeing these people just recently going through major life events that it's just all like you said it's just all truth right so when when you're sort of producing a show and there's i think i, I may be wrong there's a fine line between being an observer like 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 I am, but also like you are with these, these, these people, but also getting emotionally involved with these, these same people. 
is there like a balance between you know staying objective and empathetic in 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 the storytelling of of this production that's a great question you know i can speak to life below zero but also just speak to making documentaries as a whole you, you of course want to have as much empathy as you can with with your subjects and i think having that empathy and relating helps you tell a good story but also you are there to document you know and and i think finding that balance between becoming friendly and becoming friends with with the subject subjects is a delicate tightrope because ultimately you know it is you are making a product even a completely truthful product and but that trust uh, needs needs to be there otherwise particularly when you're not making stuff up it, you need them to open up and you need them to share and it's really just finding that balance and finding that that trust you know you ultimately trust them and and they ultimately trust you and I know this sounds like obvious, but you know, we are in Hollywood. The key is don't break that trust. Mm -hmm. The more you trust your subjects and the more they trust you, the more um, open they'll be. And of course, the more open somebody is, the more emotion you'll, you'll be able to get, the more meaning, the more um, connection you'll be able to get. But I do think the relationship between documentarian and, and subject is definitely a learned skill but also just a, a human you know a human skill oh yeah absolutely i mean it, 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 these people i think first and foremost like you said the trust factor it has to be fundamental obviously especially for a show like like we're discussing that's been on 11 seasons right you want to make sure that trust level is there of course and i think documentaries also at least in my mind they kind of push the boundaries, you know, of storytelling and, and not just, you know, light below zero, but, but any project say that you were involved with, like, was there ever something where you just like, you know, maybe it's the canoe, the, the canoe show you have com coming up um, where you're sort of taking a, a creative risk in, in, uh, in your storytelling. And if it's in the past, how did it pay off? Or just what, what, what do you think that one of the biggest risks you've taken in your productions has been? Yeah, you know, I, I think there is an interesting answer in the canoe project. You know, we set out the project started a little quick backstory is the project started with um, a viral video of a guy um, canoeing to Lady in Red. It went viral, and Colbert, it was on Colbert, kind of made fun of him, and the and, and um, you know, it was on a couple talk shows, and that was sort of my initial like, oh, this looks this looks really interesting. Like, there are these people who you know, play music and, and sometimes dress up in costumes, but they're in paddling in canoes and dancing to music. Like, what is this? And it sounds like a really interesting group of people and never, never set out with an intention, of course, to exploit or, or make fun of, but really just as an intention to explore what I think most people would say, like, oh, this is an interesting group of passionate people doing something unique and and that was the initial documentary was just kind of a a fun exploration of um you know a, a, a subculture of unique subculture and that's how we started but early on um while we were filming you know there was maybe about 10 different 
canoeists mm-hmm. who who um, sort of are the are the stars, I guess, of of this world. This couple, they were on their way to an event, and and it's a terrible tragedy. While they were driving out there, somebody swerved over into their lane, and um, unfortunately, someone someone's um, wife died, and. Um, her husband, who we were not filming at that moment, but you know, we just talked to her the day before. Um, her husband um, was hospitalized, uh, you know, with a variety of uh, broken ribs, and talking about potentially maybe he might not walk, or at least definitely not be able to canoe for a while. His wife passed away, and it was at that moment it was like, well, what, you know, of course. Um, feeling extremely sad and, and tragic and thinking like, well, this, this definitely this documentary is over, right? Like there's nothing, we're not going to follow this lighthearted comedy with this. And, and the one we thought about it and after talking to the people in the community, in, including uh, who the person who ended up becoming our main subject, you know, he, he was like, my wife really would have wanted you to continue making this. And we ended up, you know, this is that that moment you're saying, like making a creative choice that could have gone any way. We completely changed the documentary to instead of being a lighthearted documentary on people who canoe, it ended up being a documentary on loss and recovery um, and community. And we ended up following subject Bob's recovery over six to seven months and his dealing with the loss of his wife and him trying to, you know, eventually get back in to into the canoe definitely was you know um, a creative choice and one of course we wouldn't have been able to do without the encouragement of, of bob and in the community but that was a drastic turn and a drastic creative choice of course and also obviously uh, a terrible tragedy but it really was just sticking with the story. And ultimately, I think what we have is, again, I'm in no way um, discounting the tragic, um, actual story that occurred. But um, in terms of documentary, what a, what a rare opportunity to, you know, be able to document someone's journey of, of loss and, and their own simultaneous recovery and, and the impact that that loss had on a subgenre that, I mean, I noticed that subculture of, of, of people and how community came together. So I think that that documentary probably is the greatest example of a very drastic and tragic, for lack of a better term, creative choice. Right, right. Yeah. And you would think, you know, hopefully, obviously, it's hard to imagine, obviously, whatever he you know, Bob had, had gone through at the time, and, and but hopefully this provided some sort of, you know, cathartic, uh, you know, uh, uh, just just something to help him cope with what he was going through. And maybe this was able to, you know, be a small part of, of his recovery, like you said. I think it was. And I think he really um, appreciated us. You know, we kept asking over and over and we never obviously pushed him um, in terms of like being out there, but like, you know, is this okay? And really, I think the two things that ended up being great for us as as filmmakers and also going back to your question about like how close do you get to the subject we obviously got very close to to bob Kipi and my co-director mia who would go out there a lot and, and, and interview him but really what we ultimately ended up making was also a tribute to elaine elaine this is wife who who passed away and this 
you know, she was our initial contact and she was the person we spoke to and she was the one who wanted to bring this documentary she, you know, to shine a light on this, about this thing that she was the most passionate person, one of the most passionate people we've ever met, but particularly about canoeing. And it was something she cared a great deal about in this documentary. I think it's a testament and a tribute to, to, to her passion. Um, you know, we're currently touring a couple of small festivals and stuff. And I think the next big step is going to show the community. The community hasn't even seen it, seen it yet. And, um, very excited, a little nervous, but very excited to get, um, everyone's response to it. Yeah. And, and, and just documentaries in general, right? Like they've clearly, you know, evolved over the years taking like the role of documentaries, unscripted programming, and like the, the landscape of today's media, do you see any certain or, or, you know, small or large, you know, trends or changes that maybe to you, you find the most interesting of like, Hey, this excites me a lot about this that we didn't maybe have 15 years ago. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a couple things in there. You know, one is access and you talk about purely question about uh, fundraising and stuff. 10, 20, definitely 30 years ago, I mean, the, the barrier to entry to make your own doc, I mean, you need to film, you need to process that film, you need sound. And, and now all of that is, is on your iPhone. I think one of the more exciting, you know, advancements is, is, is that that barrier to entry to actually be able to film something and edit it and getting it out there. Of course, obviously there's now a lot more distribution models out there even if even if you did somehow afford the film and afford the you know the sound guy some person and and the crew to be able to make your documentary there was like three places that it could could go now there are hundreds and you know i think so that's one of the things i think is most exciting is that there is such a small barrier to entry to making documentaries along those lines i think you know, it can't be ignored the social media landscape, particularly in terms of TikTok mm -hmm. and in terms of YouTube shorts. You know, I watch uh, a lot of YouTube shorts and I see some of them, you know, they get, I don't know, 70 million views. My show gets 2 million views. And it's like, it's, it's just incredible, you know, the amount of resources that a lot of these explainer videos or, or whatever amount of views that they get. And, and I, and I, and, um, of course, I think that is, is the future, you know, will there be a place for sort of traditional linear nonfiction series in the future? I actually don't know, you know, I'm, I'm minimally using TikTok as a way to like, you know, learn what the young people are, <laughs> are watching. But, but, you know, what's pretty amazing is it's very easy to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like an old person whatever but like very easy to watch hours and hours of content and a lot of that content you know it took people you know whatever almost no money to make but um the algorithm shows you exactly what you want to see you can change your mind within that you know that oh i, I don't know, i want to watch i ended up watching a lot of people build legos for example <laughs> <laughs> a variety of different lego you know i have, I have uh, two kids and so of course the lego world um interests me but I guess to say, thinking of the future, it's really about how people will watch content. And I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I think um, YouTube Shorts and TikTok or whatever form of that becomes 
will be around and, and, and question, you know, is there still a place for a traditional cable? And, and is there still a place for the traditional cable budgets? I don't know. I guess, I guess we'll see. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, you know, <laughs> you, you do, you see these kids make these, these, I mean, kids, adults, I mean, there's obviously all ages on these platforms, especially YouTube's been around for a long time, but shorts, like you said, specifically, you, you can, you, you just need an iPhone or Android or whatever, and go out and do it and, editing programs everything can be free and accessible <laughs> and you just make it happen and it's pretty cool to see like you said 70 million views on something that maybe took you know just one person to do <laughs> yeah it, i mean it, it really is and then even you know there's a scale for those videos of course right there's you know there's someone who's just whatever recording a small i don't know TikTok dance and that took them five minutes but there are some youtube shorts that i see have an incredible amount of production value that you can see that they took their time to, to make this the shot beautifully edited well um the music the color correction and the cameras that that are being used really are competing with with broadcast quality but for you know not just a fraction of the price but like a real <laughs> fraction like a fraction of a fraction of what it takes to make a traditional 30 minute to an hour show that you know it used to be that these shorts or, or whatever it's like oh, okay well it's just it's just people creating i don't want to say cheap content but budget, not with, with a lot of production yeah. budget yeah. yeah without a whole lot of you know production value but i watch some youtube shorts some TikToks, some um short form documentaries that are, are better than you know some of the netflix documentaries that, that i watch you know even like recently I ended up watching um a short documentary about Fortnite, which I know nothing about. I don't know. I don't. I don't know anything about about video uh, games. But it was about can you? The title was "Can you be a pacifist in, in Fortnite?" And it was a thirty-minute documentary. And I'm like, did I just spend thirty <laughs> minutes watching a an explainer video about that? Uh, and and I did, and it was and it was amazing. And so I, I don't know. I, I think yeah, it's really the the probably the future is is in um you know the ability to i guess democratize content making and then the next step is doing the same in terms of distribution yeah. like, probably like podcasting i would assume right absolutely yeah i mean and 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 i think you brought something up earlier you mentioned festivals right like you you've you've done panels you've mentored at south by southwest and and, and other so like if you're giving someone advice, obviously you talked about the short form content, right? To the next generation of these um, unscripted or documentary filmmakers, like what what advice? You know, kind of kind of you know, coming off of your question, your your response to um, short form content and social media, like what advice would you give someone that's like sort of aspiring to follow in your footsteps to follow? It's really interesting because sometimes I'll be uh, working at these, you know, I'll be at an event as a documentary mentor and. Somebody will be asking me advice and I'll later go watch their content. I'm like, I should be asking you for advice. <laughs> I just watched your 30 minute video on Fortnite or whatever you just made. And, and you've got 70 million views. My show gets whatever, you know, 20 million views. But I, I do think it, it, it does all go back to, to really just finding the story and then finding obviously the, the means to tell it, you know, there's, there seems to be really two paths at the moment, at least there's the um, traditional path of finding kind of like I outlined in the beginning of this podcast is finding your way into more of a uh, work for a company kind of 
um, or companies gigs and the other you know path being just doing it on your own you know there's a lot of people most of the people particularly the young people again because i'm so old <laughs> um, the young people who who uh, work with me are doing their own projects you know again i mean what does it take now you know you can either rent or, or buy pretty great uh gear it's a very small barrier to entry but you still do have something great about you know what what they call cable or or broadcast in that there is a centralized place that people go to you know that change from networks to, to netflix to you know youtube shorts but really i guess the advice that i would give in terms of people who are specifically looking to make content versus people who are looking to break into the business to find a job if they're if they're like i have this thing that i want to tell you know my advice is then tell it like even if you're going to make the whole thing up again and not make it up but redo the documentary again get an iphone or use your iphone or buy a used iphone borrow some friend's iphone if you don't have an iphone uh -huh. and do a sit down interview and it's really just you know finding learning as we talked about on the job if someone's asking me how to break into the business and find more of a steady gig and uh, pay their rent and pay bills, you know, I think that's a different advice. And, and the short version of that advice is, is really, um, again, sort of the path that sounds like you took and, and the path that I take is, is um, as much as you can afford to take as many opportunities as you can take at regardless of the job, because eventually it's really those people who, who are going to hire you and it's finding the right people and working with them. One, of course, is the advice. And then also, ultimately, as we talked about, the dream. Finding great people and finding, you know, a great story to tell. Well, okay. So speaking of stories, right? Like I, I, I read, you know, I saw that you're, you know, you're, you're big into adventure. You like the outdoors. Are there stories that you have that you want to bring to light? In, in, in the future as a, as a filmmaker, as a storyteller that, you know, maybe they're kicking around in your head, but hey, one day I want to do a, a show about this. I'd say the fortunate slash unfortunate is I have like a hundred of those <laughs> and every conversation I have once, you know, I, I think even our conversation offline earlier about like the Jersey Shore and, you know, you, you're talking about how, you know, live that, that there's two different seasons mm -hmm. when you live out there right obviously something that you would know a lot more about but there's the summer season when all the tourists come and then there's the winter you know it's like oh i don't know you know there's probably a pretty amazing documentary or even tv show well obviously not the jersey shore <laughs> tv show but what that's like to live in a in a seasonal a seasonal place where everything revolves around the summer and and how these towns survive but anyways yes is the answer to that question there are a lot of projects and it's really just one of the things that I've been, I guess I've learned about myself, finding what sticks. So it's really finding the ideas that, that again, are interesting. Everything sounds interesting, again, you know, <laughs> initially. And then it's just trying to figure out like, okay, was that just, is there, a, is there a story there that's a Wikipedia story, right? Like this thing happened and this thing happened and this thing happened and this thing happened. Or this is what, how Atlantic City was, was, uh, born this happened this happened but is there an actual is there emotion in there is there something that more people will find will find interesting and and it's just finding those topics but yes i have quite a few that have been 
floating around and, and it's just really finding the right space and the right time for them to float to the surface. Yeah. Get, get the, the free time to, to flush them out. Right. <laughs> free, uh, free time is, is key, you know, um, obviously, as I mentioned, Life Flow Zero is my full-time job. I, I make documentaries on the side and I also, you know, I have a family. I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old and it's really finding the, the free time to, to, to make, everything there's just not enough time to tell all the incredible stories <laughs> exactly so 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 people who want to learn more about you and your story or your company interesting human media where would be the best place for people to you know follow or connect with you or just learn more about you sure um well i guess you probably google yeah. me i don't know but also um interesting human media.com you can learn about um the production company as far as life below zero uh we are on national geographic um, we currently are airing new episodes on Tuesday, and depending upon when um, this podcast comes out, our newest show, Life Below Zero, First Alaskans, will also be airing, and that's um, a show dedicated exclusively to Indigenous stories uh, in Alaska. Yeah, that's going to be awesome, man. I, I really appreciate your time. I'm learning a lot about you. I'm glad Adam connected us because this has been like just easy to talk with you and you know you just you're very personable just a, a, a great story and a just persevering you know learning on the go not being afraid to take on opportunities and and making your own path you know i think is what people can take away with this so i do uh you know thank you again for for your time today and i really just had a blast talking with you well same and likewise and thanks for again to adam and thank you for considering me for this podcast i um uh, listened, of course, before going on this to a variety of them and um, really enjoy the the variety of people you interview and, you know, talk about what's interesting. You must also be in the same way. You get the ability to sit down with such a wide range of interesting people. Yeah. Anyways, really enjoy your podcast. Thank you, man. So we will, uh, we'll, we'll meet up in person soon, but again, you know, thanks for your time today, Joe and uh, everyone, you know, go check out Joe's website and see where you can, you know, check all the cool projects he has going on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of experience curve. Please take the time to share this podcast with a friend or colleague to help get the word out about my show.